Okay, I'm glad you're here. I wanna, I wanna, I'm glad you're still here. Actually, that reminds me of something. Um, <laughs> you know, really one of my favorite Torahs, um, which is that, uh, you know, believe it or not, it, it, it sounds very counterintuitive, but, um, you know, if you, if you change places, like change locations, you'd, you'd have to say a, a second brucha on the same thing that you already said a brucha on. And these laws are actually pretty complicated, so you have to discuss your particular situation with, uh, with a rav. Um, but uh, I'll give you an example, just so you know what I'm talking about. Let's say you say a blessing over an apple, breakriates in your house, and then let's say you live close to work, whatever it is, you drive and you walk into your office, just to give one example, and you bring your, that, that same apple that you already said a brochan and you bit into, and now in your you're in your office and you want to continue to eat the apple, you would have to make another brucha on that, another blessing on that same apple. So, like I said, when, when this applies, you have to uh, talk to a rabbi about it. This is, especially comes up when, I think, almost on a daily basis for, for coffee drinkers. You know, because you go and you get your coffee and then you, you get into the car with your coffee and then it's... There's a question. But you should know that we have a general rule, which sounds a little counterintuitive, but it's actually very beautiful, which is, which is suffix bruchas lahakel, which means that if you, um, if you don't know whether or not to make a blessing or not, you don't say it, actually. You would think that, well, if I don't know, I would say it because that's more praise for Hashem. It's not the case. Why? Because we're using Hashem's name and because we have yira, we have trembling in awe about mentioning Hashem's name so we wouldn't want to do it on an occasion where it's not necessary. So that's a, an, interesting, that's an interesting rule because um, it, it keeps us in check on, on some level, on a, on, a, on a spiritual level. It keeps us humble, actually. Um, but anyway, so I was thinking, why would it be, though, if you've already acknowledged, if, if the whole idea of, 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 of saying a blessing to begin with is to acknowledge the source of this gift that you've been given and you have this apple in your hand and you say God I let's say you have full kavana you know God this apple came from you, from you this is awesome thank you so much and then you take a bite isn't that enough holy intention for one apple I mean why would you have to go through the entire process again when you've got that same exact same apple in another location so I would like to offer a explanation which is you're thanking God that you still have it Right? Because it's one thing to receive a blessing, and it's another thing to still have that blessing in your life. That's a whole separate category of blessing to still have something. Something that, you know, I, I always remember when I first started going to Minion, I was so happy because I was getting the Lady Ali, I'm a lady. So I was like, oh, yeah, another, another Kriya Satora, another reading of the Torah. <coughs> Ah, I got called up again. Thank you, God. That's so nice. I'm so happy, you know. And then all of a sudden, I realized, like into this process, I don't know how slow I was to realize this. It wasn't a very big minion. I all of a sudden realized I'm the only lady in this minion. <laughs> and that day, there was another lady and he got called up. And I thought to myself, ah, just because you receive something every day doesn't make it any less of a gift. Doesn't make it any less of a gift. So, so, um, so with that in mind, with that in mind, um, we're, we've just begun a new uh, portion of the 
the new book of the Torah. Sefer Shmos, the book of redemption, but it begins with our exile. And I just want to talk about that a little bit, and hopefully we'll be able to connect it to Tu B'Shvat, because we're beginning a new month, the month of Shvat, um, which, has, which has in it the great day Tu B'Shvat, which is um, the New Year of Trees, which is a very, very deep holiday. And, um, and hopefully we'll be able to talk about that as well. Um, but anyway, one thing that will strike you if you read uh, the, the, the whole account of our redemption from Egypt, one thing that will strike you very, very clearly, and you know, what I'm going to say is going to sound super simple, and on some level it is super simple, but it's really deep, and it really applies to all of our lives on a daily basis which is, very simply put, redemption arrives in stages. Redemption arrives in stages. And, um, you know, if you read the account of it, no one seems to be more perplexed by this or more frustrated by it, if I I can dare to use that word. Maybe it's completely inappropriate, but just humanly speaking, than, than Moshe Rabbeinu himself, than Moses himself. And I'll give you a couple of examples of that. Imagine you're Moses. And God says to you, by the way, remember, how old is he when he gets his holy mission to take the Jews out of Egypt by the burning bush? Eighty years old. Remember that? And that's the beginning. When we think of Moshe Rabbeinu, we think of him as the one who took the Jews out of Egypt. Right? That's who we think of him as. That began at age 80. So if you think you're a late bloomer, right? Like, you know, a lot of people like to quote, there's some famous t-shirt that says, by the time, you know, you were Mozart's age, he was already dead, right? <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's designed to make us feel bad. But, but, you know, what about Moshe? What about Abraham? Abraham at Lech Lecha, when he's given his mission, that's, that's the beginning of Abraham, really, in the Torah. He's 75. So, Judaism really values life experience. God really values life experience, you know? Um, So, Moshe is 80. And imagine God comes up to you and says to you, Okay, this is it. I'm keeping my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is it. It's going to happen. We're going to do it right now. This is it. This is for real. You're the one. We're going to do this. So if God says that to you, first of all, just talking about stages, I I can't not mention that if you read the account of the the burning bush, it looks like it was a conversation. Moshe goes, no, send someone up. No, no. Uh, All right, I'll do it. Look at the Rashi. That conversation was seven days long. Seven days. Moshe Rabbeinu was saying, no, not me. Seven days. He was saying no to Hashem directly. That's intense. That's intense. I mean, we talk about... I mean, it's a, it's a completely different thing on one level. But, I mean, everyone is thoroughly and appropriately blown away by Avraham Avinu negotiating with God by Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, what about if there are 40 people, 30 people, 
ten people. What? Like, where did Avraham Avinu get the presence of mind to negotiate with God? Right? But that wasn't seven days. This is seven days. At the end, Hashem becomes angry. It says Hashem got angry. And by the way, if you're wondering why Moshe Rabbeinu was not the Kohen Gadol, right? Shouldn't, I mean, of all people, who are you going to pick to be the Kohen Gadol? By the way, I had a, a new thought. It was new for me anyway. Which is, you know, the Beis HaMikdash, who's the Kohen Gadol? He's the one who, who runs the Holy Temple. So the Holy Temple, everyone knows, is the connection between heaven and earth. You know, so I was thinking, what letter means the connection? Right? That's the Vav. Right? So then I thought, oh, you know, oh, now I get it. Now I get it. What was one of the miracles of the Beis HaMikdash? So, like, one of my favorite miracles, by the way, in the whole Torah, is the pillar of smoke that rose from the Mizbeach, that even with a strong wind, it wouldn't disturb the straightness of this pillar of smoke. And it hit me on Shabbos, oh, it's a Vav. It's a vav. Why? Because the whole base of Mikdash is a vav. And why didn't the wind disturb it? Because nothing stops that from being the connection between heaven and earth. So, so anyway, so stages. And that's why, by the way, it goes to Aaron Aklain. The sages explain that, that Moshe said no one too many times. And then Hashem says, okay, so it's going to be, it's going to be Aaron who's going to, be, who's going to run the Holy Temple. It's going to be the Kohen Gadol. Um, have to mention, just because it's, it, it's so applicable to our lives, you know. One of the things that Moshe Rabbeinu is, is arguing, so what's Moshe saying for seven days, right? That's a long time, right? Well, he's saying different things. One is, Hashem, please make this the final redemption. Because Moshe gets wind that this is not going to be the final redemption. And Moshe is lobbying, make this the final redemption, God. Again, stages. Right? Um, so, so, another thing that Moshe was saying was, let it be Aaron. Let, Aaron is older than me. Aaron is also a prophet. Let Aaron do it. Also remember, just on a more human level, Moshe's been gone for decades out of Egypt, while the Jews are in their most intense period of suffering. And Aaron's keeping the show going the entire time. He's keeping the Jewish people going the entire time during the most intense level of their servitude. Of our servitude. It's coming from Aaron. So, Moshe's thinking, I, I, I'm going to come in? And, and, and I'm going to do it? Who's earned it more than Aaron? It's not right. Hashem says to Moshe, Aaron is going to be so happy. He's going to meet you in the desert. He's going to be so happy. He's going to be so happy for you. Isn't that beautiful? You know, I, I once heard Rav Shlomo say that a person... Doesn't if a person can't take joy in someone else's simcha, they don't know what joy is. They don't know what joy is. 
unless you can take joy in someone else's simcha, there's part of you that's just disconnected with joy. You don't know what joy is. You know, I saw in the name of the Chavos Halavavos, translated as the duties of the heart, he gave a, a mushal. So you know what I think it is? Because I was thinking a lot about it. You know, I heard from Reb Shlomo a definition of jealousy that always stayed with me. Something very, very intense. He, I mean, he summed up a huge concept so simply. He said, you know what jealousy is? It's thinking that someone else has your portion. You know? And I think that, you know, someone who is dedicated to Hashem, to, to elevating themselves, to spiritual attainment and all the rest, if they see jealousy in themselves, it makes them want to vomit. Because they, they sincerely love everyone and root for everyone. So how, how could they be experiencing this? How could they be? It's, it's, it, any spiritual person, if they experience this tinge of jealousy or envy, finds it nauseating. So where, where does that emotion come from? So I think that one level that it comes from is if a person is trying and working on themselves very hard, they say, God, am I not worthy of that particular blessing? I'm worthy of that particular blessing. So why is that other person getting that blessing? Aren't I worthy of that blessing? So, so... So now listen to this from the Chovos Halavovos. He says that, you know, every person on some level is like, can be compared to this story. A person is raised in a prison. Imagine a person raised in a prison. And one of the king's emissaries comes and brings that person food every single day. And takes care of their needs while they're locked in this prison. Right? That in itself is just worthy of thinking about. Because it's true, our perception is so marginal in terms of what we actually see going on in the entire world. It's so marginal what we see. By the way, I want to give a whole talk on this subject because of what I'm about to say. Because <laughs> I don't know why this isn't the headline of the newspaper every single day from now till Mashiach comes. This should be the headline of the newspaper, a banner headline of the newspaper every single day until Mashiach comes. By the way, just as a... Well, I don't even want to tell you that. Okay. What is it that scientists have now discovered? There's such a thing. You can look it up. Look it up. Type it on Google. Dark matter. Dark matter. Okay? Dark matter is a fancy word. Basically... Translated in layman's term is, we don't know what it is. <laughs> That's kind of a dark matter. That's the translation, okay? Dark matter is, huh? Okay? They now have realized that dark matter, do you want to know what, this is the highest, greatest scientists say, what percent of the universe is composed of dark matter? 
I think it's either 94 or 96% of the universe is composed of, huh? What? Ah? Dark, dark matter and dark energy. Dark energy, dark matter, I think those, I'm sure there's a difference, but they're kind of used more or less synonymously, at least in layman's terms, they are. I'm sure there's a difference scientifically. But, but, the, but the greatest scientists are saying that, not like, oh, there's 5% of the universe that we have a question mark over. That in itself would be troubling. 90 plus percent of the universe, we have no idea what it is. And you know what? I mean, is there a more beautiful expression of humility? So, quoting our Rebbe, Reb Shlomo, what did he say over and over and over and over and over and over and over again? What do we know? What do we know? What do we know? Right? So, so redemption arriving in stages. Okay? Moshe Rabbeinu now remember, put yourself in Moshe Rabbeinu's shoes, by the way. And while we're talking about Moshe Rabbeinu's shoes, how can we not say over this thought that I heard from Rabbi Solomon, the Mashkiach of Lakewood, famous question. Actually, I don't know if it's a famous question. I heard it from him for the first time. You know, what I love about this, just on a level of methodology, is you've got, sometimes you've got great questions, but you don't have a great answer for the great question. Sometimes you've got great answers, but the question itself wasn't so surprising. Every once in a while you've got a great question and a great answer. So I personally would put this thought in that that category. The great question is, Moshe sees the burning bush and he walks toward it and Hashem says, take your shoes off, you're standing on holy ground. Right? So the great question is, why didn't Hashem tell Moshe that before he stepped on the holy ground? <laughs> Why did he allow Moshe Rabbeinu, so to speak, to make a mistake that he had to fix? Just tell him, okay, Moshe, you're about to step on holy ground, take off your shoes. Why not? He's going to tell him to take off his shoes anyway. Why not, why not tell him before he does it wrong? So the answer that I heard from Rabbi Solomon, Matzis Yahu Solomon, was that it wasn't holy until he stepped on it. In other words, it was Moshe Rabbeinu's curiosity. What is this thing that I'm seeing? There's this bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed by the fire. There's something miraculous going on here. I have to investigate it. I have to understand the world and how God works in the world. I have to know what's going on. That searching, that investigation, that attachment to God, that's what transformed the ground into something holy. When we endeavor to investigate the world, to find out how God works in the world, that in itself reveals godliness in the world. That's what makes it holy. That's all of us in our quest. And I learned from, from, uh, from Jeff that, that, your, that sandals, regliam, right? Is it, or regal, I don't know the exact word, but it comes from the word... That, 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 not a lion. Not Okay, so yes, that same word is also this lock is also our habits because it's the same word in Hebrew. So that if we unlock our habits, you know, one of, and just on a super practical level, um, 
I don't do this often enough, but I heard one of the things that you're supposed to do is, let's say, you take different ways home. You know, everyone settles into their favorite travel routes. Break them. Break them. Because this type of thing will keep you... Yeah, it it, it will help you. It will help you. It, 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 It will keep you alive, basically. Because you'll be... It's new sensory bombardment. I know when I was growing up, really till this day, one of my favorite things to do is to walk in the cereal aisle in supermarkets. Just because, I, just the colors, you know? I just, it's like a real sensory bombardment. You know, I, I have a friend who told me that, you know, many years ago when his family came from Russia, the Soviet Union, he walked into like a Best Buy, one of these giant electronic stores, and he walked into the store and he started weeping. He started weeping. You know, so on the most basic level, it was just because of just the, the choices and the, what was available that he had been deprived of. That, I'm sure, was a real part of it. But another part of it was just, ah, just what he was absorbing, you know? Um, so what I want to get to is, again, how would you feel at the burning bush? By the way, the Kutzka Rebbe, I heard in the Kutzka Rebbe's name, a lot of people walked by the burning bush. (laughs) Yeah. They saw it, they didn't investigate. They saw it and they didn't investigate. I mean, you know, this world is such a funny place, you know. This world is such a funny place. You know what I, I, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Give you a couple examples if I can remember after the first example. <laughs> you know, one of the things that really grabs me, what I think is, I, I'm just always fascinated by this. When you see reconstruction going on, when you see a building going up, or someone redoing their home, and it takes so long, it takes so long when someone does a real redo or someone builds a building, like in the neighborhood, and the scaffolding is in front of the place for weeks or months and then you know they dig up because they're not going to replant the grass around it until the very end so it's all muddy and for a long time and then you see there's improvements there's improvements there's improvements and then at a certain point they finish and then you look at the thing and it looks like it was always up there you walk by it and you don't realize how much work went into making this structure? You just walked by it like it was always there. Well, I did in fact forget the second example. <laughs> you know, what about this world? People look at this world. Okay, God works very quickly. By the way, by the way, it's this point is addressed in Perkeabos because it says with ten sayings God created the world. Which is a fascinating field of, st- of study because those ten sayings correlate with the ten commandments, the Aseris Adibros, Aseris Maimarim, with also the ten plagues. And there's major fascinating correlations between all three. Um, but that's, that's a whole field in itself. So with ten sayings, God created the world. 
So the rabbis ask the question we're probably all thinking. God couldn't have done it with one? So listen to the answer that they say. No, he, he made it with ten in order to punish the wicked who, through their actions, are destroying that which took ten sayings to do and to reward the righteous. Also, on another level, God did it in ten stages in order for us to be able to grasp on some level how he did it. Because if he had just done it with one saying, all of existence would be absolutely impenetrable to us. But because he did it in stages, so we're able to we're able to decipher on some level the greatness of this world and, by extension, the greatness of God. Okay, so now I remembered um, the second thing. I heard it from Reb Elichayim, Reb Shlomo's twin brother, Olav Shalom. He gave this amazing parable. I don't know in whose name it was. It was most likely one of the Rebbe's. Um, he said a father, a king, had a um, a treasure to bequeath to his son. But the son was very young. And the king was not going to be able to tell the son um, where the treasure was um, while the son would still be old enough to understand. And the king didn't trust any of his advisors to tell the son on his behalf because the king felt that the advisors would take the treasure. So what did the king do? How was he going to be able to tell the son where the treasure was without actually giving him written instructions? So what did he do? He made one room of the palace a vastly complex, like mosaic in designs and magnificently and intricately laid out in terms of the pattern work and the tile work and everything like this. And he put one error in the design. And he, would, he understood that his son would come into this room to be able to appreciate the beauty of this. And he had confidence that his son would meditate amidst the beauty and would examine it and explore the complexity of his father's design and would come across this error and would understand that this error was actually a sign and was actually intentional and was actually trying to show the son that. And he would know that his son would try to dig deeper into it and would uncover the tile work where the error was and that's where the treasure would be. That's where Hashem hid the treasure behind this seeming quote-unquote mistake. This world looks like it was always here because the scaffolding is down. You walk by it. But God has confidence in us that we're actually going to explore all these things and also explore the idea of imperfection and evil and injustice and understand that this is just a stage of creation and understand that there's something deeper behind it which is the ultimate perfection which is coming to the world. That the one who did all of this is certainly capable of creating perfection. And that that's our job to be emissaries, partners with God in terms of creation. 
I learned something from Rabbi Blech on the letter Aleph. We're always talking about the letter Aleph, especially recently. I never heard this, though, which I really like. This concept that the Aleph, as everyone knows, it's two Yuds in the letter Vav. Everyone knows, right? If you think of the letter Aleph, right? You break it down. You've got a Yud on top, a Yud below, and a Vav running diagonally in between. So we've talked about many levels about what this means over, over the years, especially recently. If you want to know more about the Aleph, there's one talk that I would recommend that's on the site. It's called uh, Pronouncing the Unpronounceable. Excuse me. Pronouncing the Unpronounceable. Anyway. So, Yud and Yud spells the name of Hashem. Right? The letter Vav stands for human beings. Because we said Vav is a connection. So, human beings are the connection between heaven and earth as well. Right? So, when you see when you see the name of God, Yud and Yud, and you add yourself, that's the Vav, that creates the letter Aleph, which stands for the oneness of God, and is the integration of you and God himself. That's the, that's the ultimate oneness, right? That's you working as a partner with God, in terms of perfecting and revealing God's oneness in this world. So, So with that as a transition point, I feel like we've got a number of thoughts up in there right now, but I have to just go for this right now. We're about to enter into the month of Shvat. The month of Shvat is really, really interesting. You'll see we're going to get back to this concept of the leather Aleph, of being an integration between God and man in one moment. The month of Shvat is very, very interesting because it says in the Torah itself that the, the book of Devarim, right, which is the fifth book in the Torah, You'll see how that's going to play in in one moment. That the fifth book of the Torah, Sefer Devarim, Deuteronomy, Moshe began saying it on the first day of the month of Shvat. Now, I heard a claw, a spiritual claw, foundation, general rule, that when the Torah mentions a date for something, that means that that is a portal for that energy to this day. So if the Torah is going out of its way to say that that happened on the first day of the month of Shvat, then that means that that opening is still available for us. In fact, the Chidush Arim said that he saw his own Torah learning jump every time the month of Shvat came. Okay? So now, you want to hear something interesting? It came to me this Shabbos. Shvat, if you add up the gematria of Shvat, it's 311. And you add up 311, that's 5. And what did we just say? In the month of Shvat, the fifth book of the Torah came down, right? Not only that, but Shvat, or Sefer Devarim, this fifth book, is the only book of the Torah that begins with the letter Aleph. And we know that Moshe Rabbeinu himself said Sefer Devarim. And after he said it, God said, good, now write it down. So that's how it was simultaneously from Moshe and from God. So this is beautifully expressed, this partnership, so to speak, which we see in Sefer Devarim is beautifully expressed by the fact that the book begins with the letter Aleph, which is two Yuds and the Vav. Vav, Moshe is the ultimate Vav. He's the ultimate connection between heaven and earth. So you see, like, he's bringing down, he's fusing with God 
That's prophecy. That's the ultimate level of prophecy. Creates this letter Aleph, which is Sefer Devarim, which is Torah coming into this world through man. Now, I want to say something else, which is not widely known and not widely quoted. We've mentioned it before, but we just have to know this. We have to know this. The idea of redemption arriving in stages. Moshe Rabbeinu at the end of Parshas Shmos. Remember, put yourself in Moshe Rabbeinu's shoes. God says, okay, this is it. We're going to do it. We're taking the Jews out. You're the man. Moshe Rabbeinu finally says yes. What happens? Disaster. Who would expect that? I mean, if God came to me and said, go to Pharaoh. I'm going to be with you. Go with Pharaoh. Tell him we're taking the Jews out. I would bet the house that the Jews are going to leave that day. That day. And you say, well, how are you going to mobilize millions of people? God told me I'm taking the Jews out of Egypt. Sell your houses. I promise you, it's happening today. What happens? Everything gets terrible. It goes from bad to way worse. Not worse, way worse. And now here's the, here's the critical element. So the Ramban brings down, I think it's from the Tanchuma, look at the end of Parsha Shmos. The Ramban brings down that after things went really sour, after he told Paro that we're, we're going to leave Egypt, I'm taking the Jews out, God told me, and Paro says, who is Hashem? And then he makes it way worse for the Jews. Up until then, the Jews got a certain amount of straw and they had to make a certain amount of bricks. Now Paro says, now you've got to get your own straw and make the same number of bricks. It's a huge more amount of work. Huge more amount of work. You've got to get your own straw and make the same number of bricks. What does Moshe do? Moshe not only questions God, but Moshe leaves Egypt for anywhere from three to six months. See it in the Rambam. It's the Medrash. He leaves Egypt. He checks out. Checks out. You want to talk about stages? You want to talk about the stages of redemption? You want to talk about the stages of a person becoming a leader in their own lives, in the here and now? A person being able to negotiate with their own failures, with their own frustrations? with the incredible exasperation that comes from the slowness of redemption, Moshe left Egypt. I'm not saying that. That's what our rabbi said. I'm not making that up. That's our tradition. I mean, you talk about the humanity